0: Hello, uh, welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein book club and in this episode, I will, uh, look at the second half of between planets finishing up our my coverage on this uh wonderful uh juvenile that uh that he wrote uh in that heinlein wrote in 1951 uh my favorite so far we're gonna see if this trend of me liking each juvenile more than the last will continue i i have my doubts about that but we'll see so far you know they've just been keep getting better in part because he makes the themes more mature and adult. They're still juveniles. You're still. There's still moral lessons. There's still guidance to young men about how they should behave. Um, certain uh, more like gray moral choices are are left out. He saves those for other novels. We'll see that in um, Puppet Masters. I think in the next the next uh, novel we'll be looking at, which is not a juvenile, but it, it's. Um, Written the same year as this uh, very different uh, theme and approach in that um, because of a different audience. But, uh, you know, so sometimes we get this still get the didactic feel that we got in the early juveniles. But it's done so well here and it's it's presented really through real like this character, Don Harvey, this young man being thrown into a situation in which he's literally kind of lost, lost in space. Um, or adrift in space because of things outside of his control. Like, I, I don't think I've seen a character in one of Highline's novels quite as almost helpless as as Harvey is here. Certainly not in the juveniles. In the juveniles, there's always agency, and there's always moments in which they have to pull themselves up um, in a way. Um, you know, in some of the short stories, maybe there's situations like that. I'm thinking of, like, the what's the one where they're caught in the, in the, in the sand pits in, in, on, on the moon or whatever. Nothing ever happens on the moon, that novel. But even there, um, you know, they decided to go out for a hike on the moon. The Boy Scouts on the, on the moon decided to go out hiking on the surface and ran into trouble. Um, Don Harvey, like, at no point is he saying, like, I want to do X. And, and then I do X and I run into trouble, you know, like space cadet. The guy, the character wants to join the space cadet in, in red, red planet, the character wants to go and warn his parents. So he goes out and has various adventures and farmer in the sky. Our character wants to go to Ganymede and start a new life there. You know, he actually challenges his father when his father says you stay behind on earth and finish your education Uh, he he wants to do something harvey from the very first page essentially is is told where he's going to go and then he's just kind of coming to terms with that and that's what i like about this novel because i think that's a very very adult problem of fate just fate just the the world takes you where it takes you and it's how you deal with that it's how you approach it and how you you manage to thrive given the the vagrancies of fate so anyways, we've seen in the first half of this novel how uh, Don Harvey is told by his parents he's going to go to, um, he's got to go to Mars because the war is about to break out between Earth and the colonies, which basically Venus, but Mars is going to basically be affiliated with the colonies. Um, and his headmaster helps him go, he goes to the spaceport, meets up with an old friend who through a some spy versus spy kind of shenanigans manages to give him a a plastic ring which has the secrets on it on it um he doesn't quite know what he's supposed to carry but he does take this ring he's told to deliver it to his father he escapes the police or basically the police let him go on the condition that he leaves which is what he wants to do he gets to the spaceport in space or he goes up to the space station ready to get on a ship to mars and then the space station is taken over by the Venerians. They the civil war begins. The war of independence for Venus begins, and they destroy the space station. And he just by the skin of his teeth manages to be allowed because he befriended a Venerian dragon, who are the indigenous people of Venus. He's allowed to um, go to uh, go to uh, Venus instead which is not where he wants to go, but he figures at least from here I'll, I'll survive. I'll maybe be able to avoid the war. Maybe may, you know, someday make it to Mars in the future, but that's not the immediate concern. And that's more of less where I, where I left off. That's not quite halfway through the novel, as I recall, but it's, it's a good enough place to, to, to stop. Um, it sets up where we're at. Um, I think one of the more interesting aspects of this novel are the indigenous people of Venus. You have, uh, these, uh, basically kind of like cuddly creatures kind of thing that they're, they're kind of like just wild animals that are in large numbers, like squirrels or something, but they, they're a Dalfu food delicacy. And at one point early in the novel, he served this and he thinks it's kind of weird to eat it. Um, but, um, that's one of the indigenous creatures, but the main one are the dragons who are the sentient indigenous creature and they're huge. They're much bigger than humans. Um, but they're sort of integrated into Federation society. They can travel around. Um, the Venerians know their language, so it's part of the indigenous Venerian language that the people on Venus do study. It's uh, whistles is a big part of their language. Um, they are um, they're very uh, kind of respected by the Venerians, so they have a lot of clout, and that's an interesting relationship because... Uh, we didn't quite have this with Red Planet. There's like the indigenous people on Mars were sort of on the side and not really taken seriously, not well known about. Uh, Willis was, of course, one of these indigenous people. They didn't even know that these, these fuzzball things were uh, baby Martians. And we're left with this idea that it's going to take a long time to get to know them. With the Venerian dragons, we feel a lot, quite a lot is known about them. They seem to be more uh, interactive with with the coloni the co- the the colonials, but like with the Martians in Red Planet, I don't think this is the same world. This isn't apparently. This maybe it could be adjacent to future history. I don't really think so. Not like a Farmer in the Sky clearly is. Um, but these. Um, they seem to be more well understood than the Martians, uh, is my point. And their culture is explored. And this allows is a uh, to explore their culture a little bit, where they have a really weird language where they talk about sharing an egg, which is kind of an, a, a saying we're friends or, or we're family group or we're somehow comrades. Uh, th- the way they talk about death is, is very uh, culturally different than how humans talk about it. Um, they, I think it's really fun what he does. I I don't have the book in front of me. I I had to just use an audio book and I didn't have the, I couldn't find a PDF for it. So I'm kind of going off memory here, but I really enjoyed the use of, of language when the venerians talk and they, they tried to translate these concepts into English. And I just get the sense there was more of a relationship between these two and, again, this is kind of like Red Planet, is that the humans are almost allowed to be there. Uh, You get the sense that the Venerian dragons could get rid of the humans if they wanted to, so they have to be respected. Now, this is, I think Heinlein does this a few times because he's aware that the United States, and I think a lot of these juvenile novels and a lot of the future history stuff is an allegory for the colonization of the Americas, and he knows that that was done at the expense of, you know, at the cost of the genocide of the indigenous people and the seizing of all their lands. And he doesn't really want to replicate that. Um, other science fiction writers had, and, and maybe Heinlein should have. I, I think Heinlein could have been more honest about this. Instead, it's like there's always kind of a an acceptance. Now, there might be a warning that this can't hold, that if too many colonists come, there'll be a problem. That's certainly the case on Mars, we're told. If more settlers come, the Martians might just kick us out someday. Um, he doesn't want to have like what you have like with Philip Dick novels sometimes, is where you do have much more a replicating of the American frontier experience of extermination of the indigenous people, like in um, Martian Time Slip is an example of that. I think uh, Heinlein just doesn't really want to go there, and because he is so American, and he. It's a part of American history he's capable of maybe facing, I think. Uh, but he doesn't want to put into his f- fiction, at least not yet. And I think that's a downside, to be honest. I, I, I If you're going to go for the allegory of American colonization, then you kind of have to suck it up and embrace it fully. You can't just have part of it. Um, you need to kind of take the whole thing. Um, because it, once again, we have a, like a revolution. This is our... Red Planet had a revolution. Um, Farmer in the Sky had a revolution, and and now Between Planets has a, a revolution against Earth. So, uh, but so yeah, so he's thinking about the American Revolution in these cases. There's always a colony fighting for independence. Well, I guess I guess in Farmer in the Sky it was a civil war on Earth that would lead, at in some point, to Ganymedean independence. You know. Maybe that the, the, there's a slightly different metaphor there. But certainly in Red Planet, you have a revolution against Earth-based colonial forces. Um, and you have it here, too. Um, it's So the the idea of the American Revolution, of a war of independence of the colonies, of a settler colonial state, is established. But his he, he's a little bit careful about how he deals with the indigenous people. And he solves this problem by making the indigenous people Powerful enough that the humans are essentially the guests of, of the natives. And that's maybe something that we want to keep our, our eyes on as we read more of his stories. That's all I want to say. Of course, uh, the capstone of of these juveniles is Starship Troopers, where it's like just a war of extermination with, with aliens. Um, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll see an evolution there. That's something I'm keeping my eye on anyways. So back to Don Harvey and his adventures on Venus. Essentially, the rest of the novel is set on pretty much Venus, except for like the last chapter um, where he's kind of in in the Navy now and, and has to and uses this as his way to get to, to Mars. Um, it, it is kind of cool how like the entire story, the parents are gone. They're, they're just like, I don't even th- do they even appear in the last scene? It's just like, I'm going to see my parents now, finally. Um, achieve, I finally deliver that ring to my parents, which is the, the thing he wants to do. That's what's motivating him, is this idea of fulfilling this promise of getting this ring and, and reuniting with his parents. But he never has his parents. This is, makes it unique in the juveniles, in which the parents are always sort of there. Not helicopter parents, obviously. Uh, his boys are always super competent and can do a lot without their parents' oversight, and often A theme here is independence of one's parents. But here, it's just taken for granted. He doesn't have parents. He's on his own. Anyways, he makes it to Venus, and he doesn't quite know what to do. He thinks about seeking out Sir Isaac Newton, the dragon who vouched for him. But the problem is Sir Isaac Newton is a he finds out fairly high ranking and fairly well respected. And it turns out he's descended from like the first egg or something. So basically he's like royalty. He's basically like a prince of the Venerian dragons. And so he feels a little like, how would I even find him? And if I did, it's a little impertinent. So he doesn't want to do that. And he's obsessed with paying his way. Now here's really where the didactic lesson of the story comes through where Heinlein wants to insist that his characters pay their way and, and, do it on their own, don't rely on others. Um, and to make this worse, he doesn't even have like his parents' money anymore. He, he had some money from his parents, but it's worthless since the revolution. There was a time period where they could convert money, but that is past. And now he has no venerian script. His earth money is, can only be sold on the black market for like 20 cents on the dollar. And he doesn't think that's worth it. He can't even send a letter to his parents. He can't even send a, like a radio message to his parents. So he ends up working well, first, he meets uh, another young man. Um, now, there's a lot of Chinese immigrants on Venus, which is a cool another parallel to to American history, where you know also you had a lot of Asian immigration. It wasn't the biggest immigration group, but but you know. Heinlein's replicating that, and like the generational tensions between the older hardworking generation and the younger generation that's maybe born on Venus, those cultural differences, you know that immigrant experience is explored pretty well here, maybe not in a lot of detail, but we get the sense that that's on his mind. a little cliche with the the hardworking Chinese uh, elder generation and and the, but the sun was like side like a little bit you know the one that harvey meets was a little bit uh associated with crime because he's able to like do a black market deal with his um with his uh with his money Um, previously he went to a bank and the banker says i can't convert this money but maybe you can give me the ring as collateral And, and um harvey's just like well this ring's worthless, Uh, why would I do that? And the banker's like, well, it's a symbol that you'll pay it back, which suggests that somehow people know there's something fishy about this ring and it might have value because the boy he talks about converting the money with on the black market also is like, well, I'll give you like 500 for this ring. And, And Harvey's also suspicious of that because the ring seems to be useless. So do people know? about this ring? I, I was looking for that as I was listening to this book, and I didn't quite get an answer to that. Or is it just, you know, were those earnest statements like, I will take this ring as collateral or you can sell it. But in, when he realizes converting money is not going to work and he doesn't want to sell or, or put up the ring as collateral, he has to just work um, like work at the Chinese restaurant So he starts out working basically to pay his first meal that he couldn't pay for. Uh, He was like invited to dinner and then he sort of offended the young man he was with. So he's not going to pay for his dinner anymore. So he's forced to wash dishes and this becomes a job for him where he's just sort of paying for his room and board um, at this restaurant. Um, He's kind of homeless for a while too. Um, And he even like... Um, like tries to, when he tries to send a message, he meets some, he meets some other friends, including the guy who's going to send the message, who's willing to help him out. But same problem where he doesn't want to like be obliged, um, which is a bit weird because the banker does give him like a dollar for food and says, just, uh, just pay it forward. You don't have to pay it back to me. Um. And does Harvey ever really pay it forward? I mean, I guess he does because he serves Venus. He, he ends up joining the military and fighting in the war effort. But I don't think there's ever that scene where he, like, pays the dollar to someone else. Maybe I missed it. In which case, that's that's the fault of reading audiobooks. Um, when I'm, like, commuting and walking and, and things like that. That's on, that's on me. Um, anyway, I sa- I think I got the gist of this book still. Um, even though I didn't was able to take like marginal notes. Well, anyways, his son, um, or he, yeah, this guy was trying to send the message. His son um, is this woman, Isabel, and she's the one he eventually gives the ring to for safekeeping, uh, not as a gift so much, but really as a uh, for safekeeping until he kind of figures things out. Um, but. Um, War starts like the war is kind of in a lull. There doesn't seem to be much of a war going on. And then Venus is attacked by Earth. And. And um, Harvey, this leads Harvey to eventually uh, join the the army, which is at this point a guerrilla strike force, because the. The earthlings have kind of occupied venus and so it it kind of becomes a guerrilla war for a while so we get kind of a time jump where he's serving in the the army through this guerrilla faction and he's you know it's something he thrives at and and he it's part of him really growing up and maturing he goes from just working odd jobs to pay his way to being a, a a fairly significant member of the military of venus like killing enemies on campaign out in the woods, and there's this is this allows Heinlein to do his adventure part. That all these stories have a little bit of an adventure in them. Yeah, I think everyone has some adventure. I think this one is the most organic to the story itself because the story is a civil war, and Harvey, you know, is fighting the war. That's where the adventures are come through. It's not like an add on, like I thought in Red Planet. I guess you had the trek. That, that, that's kind of integral to the story. But um, Farmer in the Sky, it was just sort of an add-on. After They had this earthquake thing, and then they get dispersed, and, and he ends up going on adventure. Same thing with Space Cadet. It's kind of just like at the end, they get stranded on, I think it was Venus there. In Galileo, it's the moon Nazis that create the space for adventure. Um, but here, now that I'm thinking about it, now that I'm talking it through, you know, I think there was one, one decision Harvey makes that really does put him in, gives him some agency, not just kind of dealing with fate, but actually being it, um, having that agency. One is, I guess, not, I guess, the, the way he treats the ring and protects the ring is one. But the second is maybe joining the military. He didn't really have to. I think he was captured by Earth forces at one point. But um, they just want his ring. Um, so he's not... And he already gave it to Isabel. So he's sort of safe there. But he still chooses to join the military. So I I guess he wouldn't have had to do it at that point. Um, But uh, eventually he's uh, um, picked up. Like he's in the army. But there's other factions on Venus, including like the leaders of the resistance. And that includes Isabel and her father. And they find Harvey. And it's there that Harvey learns that the ring was actually the message. I've already kind of said this to you. I talked about it in the last episode. It's that the ring, somehow how the molecules are organized on the ring itself is a message, which is um, basically like a physics textbook that has um, new technologies that are going to allow the venerians to win the war eventually. Uh, We got... uh, new spaceships and we're gonna see them in action uh, wonderfully at the end of the story. Um, And the second are like these bubble dome, um, like defense grids that can do two things. One, it can defend a, a city from nuclear attacks or attacks from orbit, but it also can like isolate a city of the enemy, right? Kind of, you know, and be a threat that way. Like you can isolate New York City and say like, we're just going to keep people there until they starve, put them under siege until you surrender or give us what we want. So the ring, uh, the technology on the ring, the message is there through the with the help of the dragons. The dragons have a little bit more science background. Uh, again, that's something we've seen before in Red Planet, the importance of, you know, in the, the, the Martians had advanced tech and they gave it up. And and you get that sense with the venerians, too, that they have more technical scientific knowledge than they're actually using because they're more content with, um, I guess, a simpler way of life or not so technocratic way of life. Uh, But anyways, they get the tech. Uh, The ring's not entirely um, destroyed, so he's able to, I think, deliver it um, at the end. Um, But it's he's kind of a check, achieves his job, but there's a really cool moment in the, in the climax of this novel, I think, which is really the realization that the ring is the information he was supposed to deliver. He gets it from, from Isabel. But I think what's cool about this is he, there's a moment where he's like, I'm not giving it to you. I'm supposed to give this to my parents. And they're like, dude, like w- we could shoot you if you don't, you know, you're important like we respect you and we respect your service and all that but you are like if you're a threat to us winning this war yeah we'll we'll take you down um and you can't really resist us we can just seize it from you and he really stands up for himself for a while and he's like no it's got to be my choice to give you this ring to pass it on to trust you and eventually he does obviously but that's that's another cool moment where where Heinlein. Tells us, I think that even though you things seem like you don't have a choice, you do have, you can make stand your ground at certain points in your life, whether it's joining the military, whether it's choosing not to uh, put up something entrusted to you by someone else up for collateral just to make your life easier, right? Or the easiest thing to do here is just give the ring to the resistance, uh, let the resistance do what they want with it and then retire uh, somewhat and, and take your laurels, take Take your heroism. You succeeded. You did your mission. And he he chooses the hard way. He, he plays it hard. And, and I think that's kind of the moral lesson of the, of the story. Now, this gets us to the final thi- um, part of the story in which Don Harvey is allowed to essentially uh, join the crews of one of these new ships, which is like a three or four-man ship. It's, it's, it's a small ship, but they're going to go to... Um, mars to intercept some earth ships that are there to to put down the martian allies uh, because the martians are also in revolt um and their mission is to destroy those earth ships and he goes there now his job don harvey's job is to hold the dead man switch to make sure that this tech is not surrendered um to to the earthlings and which is kind of a bold job. There's even a conversation where the captain of the ship is like, I don't know if I could do this job. Like, you know, this is the most important job on the ship. And it's just, you have to choose to kill us all or to kill yourself to save the mission or save a part of the mission. And, and you're like, senior senior members of the crew are like, I don't know if I could do this. Hopefully you're the right man for the job. And it's, it's like, uh, and you're at the end of the book. You're literally, there's like five pages left in the book at this point. So you're thinking, maybe this could be the end. That would be a pretty bold. Uh, he did his mission. You know, He saved the revolution in a way. It's kind of his done. Like this added part is just him trying to get to his parents, get to Mars. That's why he tags along. But there's not much book left. So it's plausible that the book ends with the battle in which they're destroyed or when Harvey has to destroy the ship, which would be a really kind of awesome way I, you know you, you probably on some level know he's not going to do that because you've read f- four other of these juveniles um, but you know in the back of my mind I was thinking maybe that'd be a cool way to end the story but anyways, they just wipe out three earth ships in seconds it's like the whole battle ends up when it finally comes is l- like just two or three lines it's just uh, you know the they're like are we you know the whole which is probably how space battles will be if they ever come about in the future. Is It's just like who can shoot off the... It's more like maybe a submarine battle, right? Like whoever can identify the target first and shoot off the ordnance first is probably going to win the battle. But this one little ship destroys three of these Earth ships in seconds. And the way it's described is quite well. It's just like little lights. that get bigger and bigger and then disperse as, they, as the ship, as the little David it's called, flies through. Uh, the debris it's it's wonderful little moment um and they get to mars and and it's set up for h- him being reunited but I, I think he never actually sees his parents um throughout the whole story um it's it's pretty nice um i really enjoyed this one i think it's um What I what I like about this, I I I think as a statement of of individualism, um, in the midst of fate, I, I think this one really works because especially that moment where Harvey stands up for his moral right to his ring, even against his allies, like the people he serves, the military that he serves, and the resistance that he supports, right? He's part of that movement, but even there, he insists on his individual right to. Um, protect his property Um, and it's not I mean even though it's worth almost nothing it's for him significant it's like meaningful in that it connects him to his family and it's it is kind of his MacGuffin throughout the whole story but it's it means a lot to him because it's his connection to his parents right it gives him a purpose to going back to see his parents but he needs to insist on that this it's very much the individual versus the institution kind of tension. And his helplessness throughout kind of builds up that tension. And it finally, uh, um, you know, and he has his moments where he stands up for his moral rights. And, and I think that's the strength here. I think Heinlein's individualism is best when it's this anarchic kind of individual versus the institution. Now, we're going to have to come back to this theme in Puppet Masters because that's obviously a much more mature novel. It's for adult audiences. It's uh It has the things we've been missing when we've been doing the juveniles and the future history stories uh, Which is sex and nudity and all that fun stuff. Uh, Heinlein you can tell Has been sitting on his hands so long on this issue We've seen nudity before in some of the astounding stuff and sex and there hasn't been almost none of it For a few years now because he's been publishing in more popular mainstream magazines and because he's been writing these juveniles and so there's a point in the story where he literally is like, everyone has to be naked. Well, let's, I'm just going to take off everyone's clothes <laughs> and uh, you know, make it the law that everyone has to be naked. Um, you can tell he's just like wanted this moment for a while. Um, so, but the same theme of the individual versus the institution comes up there. And now the story Puppet Masters is, a, by this point, a cliche science fiction trope of the bug creatures, the slugs, You know, a conspiracy from Star Trek, The Next Generation. Something is on your body controlling you. And you don't know who's controlled and who's still the free man. And that's going to be the tension throughout the story. Um, And we'll see where it goes. Uh, I'm still reading it. um, Having fun with it. And I'll probably spend a couple episodes on it like I did here. It's a little bit longer than the juveniles. It's, it's actually fairly lengthy. It's about twice as long as these juveniles. But I'll still try to talk about it in two episodes. I, I don't plan to talk about any novel more than two, at most three episodes, just because of whatever. It's the Highline Book Club. I'm not strictly stuck to a 100 pages at a time format here. That's kind of the purpose of these uh, deep dives into the authors, is to, to free me from the, the structure a little bit. Um, I think with the Philip Dick book club I went deeper in I I only did like 30 or 40 pages When I did the novels in an episode But I had more to say about Philip Dick Than I do Heinlein Sorry Heinlein You're fun I'm enjoying this venture with you But you're just not You're not Philip Dick Maybe you are to some people out there But you're not You'll never be that to me But anyways um, That is going to be it for now Um Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time with uh, my look at the first half, at least, of Puppet Masters. See you then.